This morning we are in week two of our verse-by-verse study through this New Testament epistle, the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this fledgling congregation in the city of Thessalonica. I've entitled this series, Settled in Hope. Because in Thessalonica, there were all kinds of things they were dealing with, difficulties they were facing that could have caused them to become unsettled, that could have rattled them, that could have caused them to be shaken. And he even says, alarmed. And I mentioned that last week, we too are living in a season in life and a season in world history and American history where we as Christians could start to become unsettled. We could start to become shaken. We could start to become alarmed. And Paul is writing to them, and I believe Paul is writing to us, and he would simply say, settle, settle, be settled in hope, in the hope that we have. Around the year 156 AD, in the second century, right in the middle, an 86-year-old Christian pastor by the name of Polycarp was pastoring in the city of Smyrna. That's in what is now modern-day Turkey. Polycarp was arrested by the local Roman official. He was arrested because he was a Christian. And the Roman official said, you can be released if you will simply recant your faith. You can be released if you will simply deny Jesus and offer worship to the emperor. If you will burn incense to Caesar. Now this pastor, Polycarp, he was actually discipled by John. Yes, that John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. So he's a second generation Christian. And so his testimony gives us great insight into the early church after the time of the apostles. He was born around 70 AD, historians figure, and around the age of 25 is when he was appointed by John the Apostle to be the pastor of the church in Smyrna. Well, he refused to recant. He refused to deny Jesus. And so he was burned at the stake for his testimony of faith. And we have recorded for us by his congregation the prayer that he prayed just before the bundle of sticks was set aflame and he was burned alive. He prayed this prayer in part, O Lord, I thank you that I have been considered worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. Now this prayer that he prayed of being considered worthy, we'll see in just a moment, he's quoting from the passage we're going to study today in 2 Thessalonians. Polycarp was quoting what Paul wrote to this fledgling church that was also enduring great affliction, great persecution from the Roman government. Look, in fact, what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is God's word. Hear it. Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be, here's our phrase, considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. The title of my message this morning is Judgment Call. Most of y'all have probably heard that phrase before. In athletics, we recognize that officials, that referees, that umpires, they make judgment calls. In the sport I'm most familiar with, the sport of wrestling, virtually everything is a judgment call by the official. He determines whether or not somebody scores a takedown, somebody scores a reversal, somebody scores near fall points, or somebody even is pinned. That's all a judgment call. The same way in basketball. It's the official who determines whether or not something is a foul or a flagrant foul. In baseball, it's a judgment call, whether it's a strike or a ball. In football, it's a judgment call, right? Some things are where the ball is going to be placed. As most of you know, I'm the public address announcer for Lookout Valley High School football. And every week when I announce those football games, I'm required to read a statement from the Tennessee Secondary School Athletic Association, the TSSAA. And in that statement, it says in part, quote, spectators recognize officials must make judgment calls. And it's usually our questioning of the judgment calls that gets the most uh, noise from the fans. Let's put it that way, right? That's a horrible call. Are you kidding? Right? Judgment calls. But it's not just in sports that judgment calls are made. Police officers must make judgment calls, right? A police officer has to determine, is it worthwhile to have a high-speed chase to try to apprehend this, this criminal if it might bring danger to the public at large? In split seconds, police officers have to determine if lethal force is necessary, necessary when there's a threat upon them. And then that judgment call is then judged in slow motion, frame by frame, in their body cam. They've got a split second to make the decision. We as parents have to make judgment calls, right? We, have, we get asked by our children, hey, can I go here? It's a judgment call. Can I spend the night with this person? That's a judgment call. Can I wear this? You ain't going to the house dressed like that, right? That's a judgment call. When our children are quarreling with each other, we have to go in there and make judgment calls. And I'll be the first to tell you, as a parent, I've made some bad judgment calls. But I'll tell you somebody who's never made a bad judgment call, God. God's judgment calls are always right, they're fair, they're equitable. In fact, this is exactly what the Bible says in the last book of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. There is never any chance for anybody looking on in the bleachers to say, oh, that's unfair, God. That's not quite equitable, God. That's unjust. That's unfair. No. God's judgments are always true. They're always just. And in our focal passage today, the Apostle Paul talks about evidence of, quote, righteous judgment. And that word righteous, the adjective, it means uh, without error, without flaw, guiltless. We don't ever have to question God's judgments. Is he being too hard on somebody and too soft on somebody else? But you know, one of the thoughts that can challenge our faith is, the, is that when we go through difficulties, when we go through hardships, when we go through times of suffering, it can seem that God is uninterested. It, it could seem that God's uninvolved. As we encounter varying degrees of trials and difficulties, is God aloof? Is he uninterested in the very real pain I'm walking through right now? Sometimes we can even think, well, you know, God's got much bigger things to worry about than just little old me and my problems. That's not true. 
God is concerned with the minuscule details of your life. God is involved in the very intricacies of your life. And God has given ultimate evidence that he is indeed concerned with your hardships and trials. Namely, the cross of Jesus. The cross is in fact the proof that he's concerned for our needs and our suffering. In fact, notice how Paul put it towards the end of Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul wrote, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we think the world is against us, all we have to do is look at the cross to know that God is for us. And he will, with the cross, with our salvation, graciously give us all things to endure and persevere through the suffering we face. Well, this morning from this short passage in 2 Thessalonians, I want us to consider really four evidences, four evidences that give us uh, that the fact that God, in fact, makes right judgment calls every time, that they are true, that they are just. The first one is this. God gives, number one, divine recognition through oppression. Look at verse 5 again. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And when I was studying this passage this week and I was kind of making my initial observations of the text, one of the first questions I asked myself was, what does the word this refer to? If this is the evidence, what is the this? What does it stand for? What does it represent? And what this represents is this. It's what Paul mentioned in the previous verse. Verse 4, if you have your Bible open, you can see what that is. In verse 4, Paul is giving thanks for the believers in Thessalonica. He is telling them, I'm bragging on you throughout all the regions and all the churches. What is he bragging on them about? What is he thankful for them about? Look at verse 4 again. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for this your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul was bragging on the fact that even though they were under severe persecution, harsh affliction, their faith remained strong. They were steadfast in their belief in Jesus. And Paul says this, this steadfastness, this faithfulness through hardship, this is evidence that God considers you worthy of the kingdom of God. It's his recognition of your faith, and he recognizes your genuineness of faith through the oppression. I touched on this a bit last week, that there can be a false understanding about affliction as far as Christians are concerned. Because the false and diabolically lying health and wealth gospel that is being proliferated in our country and around the world has crept into even Bible-believing churches and Christians, we can adopt even some of the nuances and insinuations of that false teaching. The thought goes something like this. If God loves his children and I am his child, how could God stand by and watch me go through this and not intervene? This is why it is necessary to have a thoroughly biblical understanding of suffering. A thoroughly biblical understanding 
of trials and tribulations as Christians. In fact, there's two things I want to point out about oppression as far as Christians goes. First of all, oppression is unavoidable. As Christians, if you are a Christian, tribulation, affliction, oppression from non-Christians, it is unavoidable. Paul said as much in his previous letter to these Thessalonians. In chapter 3, verse 3, he said, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Whatever you think your future is going to hold for you, whatever you think your destiny is, I'm here to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, if you're a Christian, your destiny includes affliction. Your destiny includes tribulation. Your destiny, if you're a Christian, includes persecution. In fact, can we all say this together? My destiny, my destiny, let's try it a little louder. My destiny includes, includes affliction. Affliction. Let's say that all together. My destiny includes affliction. This is what it means to be a Christian. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. In fact, Jesus said the very same things when he gave his final instructions to his closest friends, his disciples, in John 15. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus couldn't have made it any plainer. You love Jesus, the world hates you. That's the equation. That's the reality. That's our destiny. But yet so often we try to straddle the fence, don't we? We try to have friendship with the world, one foot over here, and friendship with God. Friends, you can't do that. Allegiance to Jesus will mean affliction from the world, hostility with the world. So first, oppression is unavoidable. Second thing that helps us to have a biblical view of suffering is that oppression is valuable. Oppression is valuable. Being persecuted for our faith in Christ is actually beneficial to us. Now, I've yet to meet a Christian who says, sign me up for suffering. Well, we don't think that way, nor should we. When you go to the doctor to get the test results, you don't go saying, I sure hope it's bad news. No, we don't do that. So it's not that we are you know, sadistic and we're trying to sign up for suffering, but we recognize when we walk through suffering, when we walk through trials, when we experience persecution on behalf of our faith, it's valuable. It's actually beneficial to us. The Apostle Peter wrote something very similar to what Jesus said. He said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why? That's our destiny. We know this. We've affirmed this. But here's the benefit package that comes with it, he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's what happens through suffering. Jesus makes his glory known to us. And I'm here to tell you there's not a better benefit package in the world. 
God's means of working his eternal purpose in our lives, the very troubles that the world heaps on believers, these are God's means of making us and shaping us and preparing us for his future glory. In fact, I want to look at a, a few of the ways that suffering actually does us good. Suffering does us good, real quickly. These aren't on your outline. You may want to write these on the back. Suffering does us good because it makes us long for heaven. Have you ever been there before? It's so painful, and the trial is so deep. I just want to be in heaven. This is what suffering does for us, and that's good. Also, secondly, suffering stirs up our hope for Christ's return. Man, when everything is on easy street, we're not ready for Jesus to come back. Hey, don't come back yet, Jesus. I got a lot of good stuff going on here. But when we're in the midst of suffering, it stirs up our hope for Christ's return. But here's the third thing. Suffering severs our attachments to the world. Friends, we are so attached to the world. We're so attached to the kingdoms of this world, the successes of the world, the benefits of the world. When we go through real suffering, it's cut off. It's severed. Paul put it this way in Romans 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and character produces hope. This is, this is the chain reaction, if you will, of suffering. When we suffer as Christians, it develops in us this trait of endurance. And as we endure through the difficulties and the hardship and the oppression and the persecution, guess what? Christ's character is formed in us. And when Christ's character is formed in us, guess what it results in? I long for the return. I can't wait to see heaven. It severs our love for the things of this world, and it produces hope. Hope. The point is, suffering for Christ and being oppressed because of our faith, you know what it does? It's an identifying mark. It's our seal of approval from God. He recognizes us. This, again, is what verse 5 says. This, the suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. His, his judgment calls are always perfect. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now, as I considered this reality this, this week, it prompted a question in my own heart. What about the modern church in America? Are we ready for suffering? If next week or next year or next decade, I told Weston earlier, I'm going to mention in my sermon today, Weston, how old is he, 12, 13, 12? When Weston's 32, it may be illegal to be a Christian in this country. Will the churches be empty? Will the people who are sitting in the pews this morning be sitting in pews that morning? This is important for us to consider because the true Christians are the ones who will be. When the command of the Lord is to gather with the people to worship, yes, we walk in safety and wisdom. We're as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're faithful to the gospel call. That's the first thing we see here. Those who have a genuineness of faith, even in trial and hardship and persecution, that's God's stamp of approval. It's divine recognition of the oppressed. Leads to the second thing I want us to see. 
divine retribution upon oppressors. Continuing in verse 6, Paul now kind of turns the focus to the other side of the coin, if you will. And the other side of the coin reveals this truth. God will, in fact, execute divine punishment, divine retribution on those who afflict his children. Those who are causing you harm for the sake of Christ, they will get theirs. Make no mistake. Notice what verse 6 says. Since indeed God considers it just, here's another judgment call, he considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's a payday someday. There is payment coming for all those who afflict the children of God. They will receive God's righteous justice. Now some might think this doctrine of divine retribution. Isn't that an Old Testament doctrine? The Old Testament mean God? This isn't really a New Testament doctrine for the loving God, is it? No, it is. It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Divine retribution for those who afflict pain on his children, that is a New Testament doctrine. And this doctrine of divine retribution gives further evidence to the fact that God is just and his judgment calls are always Right. In fact, it is this, listen, don't miss this. It is this sense of divine justice that is the very heart of the gospel. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus come and live a perfect life, tempted in every way we're tempted, yet without sin? Therefore, he did not earn the wages of death through sin. It's because of the divine justice of God, divine retribution. Somebody had to pay for your sin. Are you going to pay for it? Or are you going to receive the just payment that Jesus had offered in your place? This is the good news of the gospel. This is the love of God. That this same justice that Jesus assuaged in his own life and through his death, this same justice will be meted out on all who reject Christ's work. This divine retribution will be poured out on all who do not trust in his wrath swaging death. And that's what Paul's saying here. Those who have afflicted, they will be repaid with affliction. But friends, can we be honest for a second with each other? It's difficult in this life to sometimes not resent the fact that the children of God, the righteous, seem to be trudging along, and these wicked folk, man, they are prosperous. Ever thought that before? God, I'm here trying to do my best. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to be faithful. And I'm just barely making it month to month. And this reprobate over here who mocks you, he is successful in every way. You ever thought that? Well, you're not the only one. (laughs) In fact, Asaph thought the very same thing, an ancient believer in the one true God. And he wrote about it. We know he thought that because he wrote about it. In Psalm 73, look what he wrote at the beginning of the psalm. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, I see these these wicked people, and they're prospering, they're successful, they're good-looking, they're popular. And my feet almost slipped when I considered their prosperity. In fact, a little bit later on in the psalm, it's almost comical. He says they're basically fat, dumb, and happy. 
I wish I was fat, dumb, and happy like them. The only thing he says that kept him from slipping was one, he did not want to leave a bad example for the generations to follow. But finally, do you know what corrected his errant thinking? You know what got him back to thinking rightly about these things? Here's what it was he went to church. He went to church. (laughs) In fact, look what the Bible says in Psalm 73. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. As I say often, chronic church absenteeism is either an indication of sin in your life or an invitation to sin. So you can only backslide so much if you are out of church every six days or so, right? (laughs) Out of church for six months, this is what happens. But he says, I went to church, I heard the word of God, I sang the Psalms about the nature of God, then I was able to discern my ways. In fact, this is what Asaph remembers. Look how he continues in verse 18. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. He remembered after going to church, oh yeah, God, you're in charge. You will execute final judgment. And here's the thing, listen. We should be, as Christians, particularly grieved when we see the wicked prosper. Here's why. When the wicked are prosperous, when the godless are successful, they have no reason to repent. They will remain in their godless state if they're experiencing, quote-unquote, blessing. It should grieve us. We should not rejoice at the destruction of the wicked. But then, it's amazing, in the psalm, Asaph goes from one of the lowest places emotionally to one of the highest places. Look how he concludes the psalm. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth. It severs worldly attachments. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what that is, friends? Hope. He hoped in God. He hoped in God. First, realizing that God's blessing in in his own faith and then recalling there is going to be judgment for the wicked. Now, there are some who would respond and say, you know, I just can't really, really accept the fact that a loving God would bring divine retribution, eternal hell, and next week we're going to just talk about hell. It's going to be a very intriguing and uh, invigorating study. How could God send someone to hell forever? How could a loving God do that? Well, verse 8 answers this question of our text. God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Don't say God is unloving when he demonstrated his love for you by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to save you. God is not unloving. God is the ultimate in love. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And this eternal divine retribution will be meted out on those who rejected this loving act. So God is fully justified 
His judgment calls are always right. They've rejected the gospel. They've not obeyed it. But here's the third evidence of God's righteous judgment. He will bring divine relief for the oppressed. Verse 7 says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. You might want to circle this word relief on your outline. It's a word that means freedom, easing, refreshment, restoration, and rest. He will grant relief to you who are afflicted. Jesus made a precious promise to us about rest, didn't he? In Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this promise from Jesus about rest is is particularly pointed towards spiritual rest. When we come to Christ and we accept that invitation to come, he gives us spiritual rest rest from the weariness and the burdensomeness of our souls. But here, when Paul talks about relief and rest, he's talking about it in the eternal sense. It's a permanent rest. He's pointing to the final rest that will come to be enjoyed by every believer, that in the very presence of God, we find relief from ever, forever, relief from sin, relief from persecution, relief from temptation, relief from sorrows and loss. The very same hands that were stretched across that cross will envelop the believer on that day and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's exactly what the Bible says in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death (laughs) shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, this is the eternal relief Paul's talking about. This past week, we laid to rest our sister in Christ, Margie Lively, and we rehearsed this truth again and again. In that instant, she shed the temporary, and she gained the eternal. In that instant, She was wrapped up in the love of Christ and every hurt, every flaw, every failure, every mistake, every loss was immediately erased in the presence of Christ. And every tear was wiped away by his hands. Is this not amazing? Is this not glorious? The Lord will grant relief to you who are afflicted. So when does this ultimately happen? When will it ultimately come about that relief is granted to the believers who are struggling and suffering and persecuted and retribution is meted out upon the godless? Well, that's the fourth and final evidence he points to. Number four, divine revelation of the judge. The one, the umpire, who makes the judgment calls that are always right and just. Look again at verses six and seven. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, here's when it's going to happen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
a large portion of the rest of this letter of 2 Thessalonians, these three chapters, is a continuation of a subject he began in 1 Thessalonians, namely about the return of Christ, about the second coming of Jesus. And it is this promised reality we must remind ourselves of again and again, day after day, Sunday after Sunday. This truth is what settles us in hope. It's what calms our nerves. Christ is coming Again, but, but don't miss the specific insight Paul's giving here. The affliction, the, pers- the persecution, the oppression against God's people comes and is relieved finally and completely when the Lord Jesus returns with his mighty angels. Up until that point, tribulation. Up until that point, persecution. Affliction will persist. Now what's interesting here? As Paul introduces in this second Thessalonians the concept of the return of Christ, he uses a different word to describe it than what he used in 1 Thessalonians. When we studied 1 Thessalonians back in the spring, I showed you one word that's used multiple times there. It's the Greek word parousia. It's translated coming normally in our New Testament. This is how uh, Paul used it in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Look what he says there. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left at the coming, the parousia of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. James, the half-brother of Jesus, used this word parousia as well in James 5.8. He says, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the parousia, the coming of the Lord, is at hand. Jesus Use this word in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. He says, For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. But here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul doesn't use this word parousia, this word coming to describe the return of Jesus. He uses a different word, and the word there is revealed in our, our scripture. In verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed, the Greek word there is apocalypsis. We get our English word apocalyptic or the apocalypse from this Greek word. In fact, the book of Revelation is actually the apocalypse. This word apocalypse means revealing, or even better, unveiling. See, this unveiling, when Jesus returns, currently, though Christ is present, his his glory, his majesty is veiled. But there's coming an unveiling. In first century Greek culture, this word was used to describe a masterpiece statue, a a carving that was covered with a cloth. And this this statue would be covered with this sheet, covered with this cloth, but there was coming an apocalypsis, a revealing. When that statue would be revealed, the cloth would come off, and the glory, the majesty, the magnificence of this work of art is revealed. And that too is coming It's been present all along. His glory's here. It's just veiled. It's covered over. No one notices the brilliance. But the apocalypsis, the the unveiling is coming. In fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 describes the unveiling of the glory of Christ like this. Behold, he is coming, a parousia, with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Paul describes the fact that when the Lord Jesus is revealed, 
this unveiling from heaven when His glory is manifest on the earth. He's coming, He said, with His mighty angels in flaming fire. As I meditated on this phenomenal reality, the Lord Jesus unveiled all His glory manifest and He's coming with His mighty angels in flaming fire. I couldn't help but think of that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a mob of soldiers and Romans came to arrest Jesus there in the garden and, and old Peter, <laughs> he pulled out a knife and was going to defend Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send to me more than 12 legions of angels? And in my mind's eye, I just imagine 12 legions, thousands of angelic hosts ready at the teeth on the leash and God is holding them back and they see the promised Son of God being abused and being persecuted and to be killed and God is holding them back. They're ready to execute vengeance. And Jesus says, not yet. Not yet. In 12 weeks, we're going to study Luke chapter 2. These angels come before the shepherds and say, Glory to God in the highest as the glorious Son of God is veiled in human flesh. And throughout His life, He was unveiled. Even today, He's unveiled. But an unveiling is coming. A revelation is coming when the God of the universe will release the leash and tell the angels, Sick him! He's coming with His mighty angels to execute vengeance on all who disobey the Gospel. In fact, notice the key word. Not only are they inflicting vengeance upon the wicked, but when the angels come, what else are they doing? Verse 7, note the word order. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. You see, when the angels come, to bring retribution upon all those who do not obey the gospel. They are also coming at the very same time to bring relief to all those who have believed the gospel. This is exa exactly what Jesus said both in Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13. Look what he said in Mark 13. But in those days, after that tribulation, that persecution, that hostility, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man, not veiled anymore, clearly, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Look what he says next. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Those mighty warrior angels that are sent to bring retribution against all the godless and wickedness in the world, they will also bring relief to we who are faithful. We who have stood faithfully and steadfastly through the persecutions, through the hostility. This is the promise of Scripture. It's the promise that Jesus gives here. It's the promise that Paul reiterates, that Peter tells us. This is the theme throughout the New Testament. Suffering, yet rejoicing. Tribulation, yet hope. And to the unbeliever, you know what that sounds like? That's ridiculous. How 
dumb can you be? But God's allowance of suffering in our life is proof that he makes good judgment calls, that they're always just and they're always fair. And may we be considered worthy of the kingdom. At the beginning of this message, I introduced you to a second century martyr by the name of Polycarp. Is it any wonder that Polycarp in his death in the flames of fire said, Oh God, thank you that you've considered me worthy to be numbered among the martyrs. He says, I've been considered worthy for this. What a gift. The Lord's considered me worthy to suffer for Christ. Well, the historical record shows that when Polycarp was in fact on trial before this Roman official in Smyrna, the Roman official again said, if you will recant, if you will burn incense to Caesar and worship the emperor, you will be freed. Notice what Polycarp said to the Roman official. He said, I have served my Lord for 86 years. He's never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme him now? Do with me what you will. Would that be your reaction? Do you love Jesus that much? Are you that convinced of his love for you? Does he mean more to you than even life itself? If so, friends, these are the kinds of Christians that turn the world upside down. These are the kinds of Christians that change the world. And who knows, in our own lifetime, we may be called to such a question. How would we answer? Would we be considered worthy to suffer the name? And that leads to my last thought. Our faith is purified in the trials of fire.